Welcome to Scavengers Horde. We're a Star Wars podcast offering thoughts on whatever takes our fancy, be it the latest show on Disney Plus or a weird Legends novelization you may have forgotten existed. If you're new here, let me introduce myself. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 173, and it's 23rd of January 2022. Okay, so the way we do things now is that we start each episode with a few non-Star Wars recommendations. Um, so if you do want to get straight to the stalls, totally cool, we understand. Um, and I will provide a timestamp for exactly when that part of the discussion starts. Spoilers, we're going to talk about the Book of Boba Fett. I know, <laughs> it's so shocking. Um, but yeah, to begin with, we're just going to like get what we've been watching, what we've been reading out of our system. And yeah, share some thoughts on random non-stallsy things. Um, so yeah, Kirsty, what would you like to highlight? My first one is a bit cheeky, actually, because I haven't quite finished it. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. You didn't even need to confess that. You're just so honest. You're too honest for your own good, Kirsty. <laughs> I'm. I did want to keep it honest. Um, I just. I really wanted to mention this because one, I'm proud of myself for, for getting this far. I was going to say finish it, but as we've established, I have not quite finished it. But I'm like <laughs> over ninety percent of the way through. Yeah, that counts. Um, a lot a- of it's footnotes. You're fine. <laughs> Yeah, it's a brick of a biography. It's called The Brontes. And in America, it has this longer title. It's called Wild Genius on the Moors, The Story of a Literary Family by Juliet Barker. And it's one that you recommended to me a while ago. So thank you for the recommendation. Um, I've really enjoyed it. Um, As people who already listen to the show know, we are both fans of The Brontes. Um, and I've been to the the parsonage in Howarth, so I thought I knew a fair amount about them. But it turns out I really did not, not their personal lives and, and what their lives were like day to day and their family history, especially their father Patrick's as well. So, um, yeah, I recommend that to anyone who has an interest in the Brontes and their work. Yeah, and obviously because I recommended the book to Kirsty in the first place, I second this recommendation. Um, I think it's perhaps the best literary biography I've ever read Um, and I'm not going to pretend like I've read dozens of them I haven't I have read more than this one but this is the one that really sticks in my mind and I'd say if you are a big fan of any of the Bronte's books pick this up because you won't regret it it might take you a while as it did with Kirsty but I promise you it's worth the patience and the effort because it's perhaps not the story people might expect you know because I think reading the Brontes books you know you get all this like high drama and it's all these like very extreme emotions and stuff and it's not like those fictional stories are repeated beat for beat in the actual lives of the people who wrote them but the stories of the actual people are fascinating in their own right and I kind of love how reading that book it makes you realize how modern and sensibility they were I think Back then, it's pretty safe to say that women had very few options, you know, what they could do with their lives, because for purely economic reasons, you pretty much had to get married most of the time. You know, you had to like find a man, like shack up and like have many children, you know, and that was pretty much your preordained destiny. But like the Bronte sisters, they were just about comfortable enough, you know, because their father was a priest, that they could pursue this writing. That was their really big passion. They basically had the means that they could, you know, stay at home and write until they didn't. And then they had to try and find ways to make money. And they actually tried to find ways to make money, you know, by like starting a school or going abroad to teach in another country and that sort of thing, you know. And again, in a way, a lot of it does feel quite 21st century. And yeah, I think if you read it, you'll find it surprisingly relatable. That's what I've tried to say using many words. So I've been very inefficient. So sorry. Um, but yeah, just see what I'm trying to say, Kirsty. Definitely. It's fascinating. And um, one of the strengths of this biography is that Juliet Barker addresses a lot of the, not, I wouldn't call them lies, but um, maybe misinterpretations or embellishments of things that have appeared in older um, biographies about these these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and she goes through a lot of um, Mrs. Gaskell's biography of Charlotte, because that was obviously published very quickly after Charlotte's death, maybe within those 10 years. Don't yes, know exactly. it was. Yep. And she was, you know, a friend of Charlotte's. And I just think of like the, the lack of the hindsight that she had. And, and maybe she was 
um, she'd had like certain biases or just kind of going on information that she'd received from other people and there were, there were definitely some um, embellishments, exaggerations and maybe misrepresentations of, of people like her father, Patrick, um, that are definitely worth addressing. Um, yeah, and oh, you were going to talk about, you've had some feelings about the upcoming movie about Emily, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so basically there is a film being made about Emily Bronte um, and it's being directed by an actress called Frances O'Connor. It's going to be her first film. So good for Frances. You know, I love seeing more female directors. There's far too few female directors. Um, and it's really great that that's starting to change, you know, and women are getting more opportunities to direct films. So I'm really happy on that front. But I have seen, like, word on the street, if you will, the Bronte streets. <laughs> As you know, they're very popular. It's where all the cool kids hang out on the Bronte streets. But yeah, word on the Bronte streets is that it's going to basically give Emily, like, a love interest. And, you know, do the whole thing where the big romance in Wuthering Heights is inspired by this like, actual love that Emily had. And... I think it's safe to say, and Kirsty can back me up on this from having read the book, that Emily did not have a grand love affair in real life. And she was very like misanthropic and she liked her own company. You know, she liked herself, she liked her sisters, she liked her dog. And I think she was quite happy on those terms. And yeah, and obviously, again, I'm not at all opposed to love stories. You know, I love a good, well done love story. You know, they can be some of the best stories, you know, as... I love Wuthering Heights. You know, obviously, I love what love stories. It just drives me a little bit nuts when they take a real-life person who happened to be responsible for creating a very iconic love story and then is kind of like the vision of the person choosing to tell that story is so limited that they can't see any way that that woman could have t told a story like that without having had herself some big love affair so the film might completely prove me wrong you know I'm being very unfair so obviously I haven't seen the film I've just heard rumors about what the story is but I'm just a bit afraid about the direction it might go in so yeah maybe it will be presented as a fictionalized version of her life maybe it's not going to be presented as if it's actually real life what do you think <laughs> yeah I'm sure it would um and like again that gives them like a get out of jail free card basically you know because then when people complain about it not being historical they just say oh we're not pretending to be historical but I guess it, my feeling is just you can really tell interesting stories about this woman without doing that you know you, you don't necessarily have to make like a beat by beat documentary about what actually happened in her life but she could she's an interesting person without having a love story in her own life you know look at her mm -hmm. as an artist look at what did actually inspire her you know and what like you know look at the time when they were in school and was it belgium this has been a while since i read the book yeah well that's it was, yeah they were in brussels What's brussels interesting... thank you god how the hell did i forget that god i'm a bad hashtag bad Bronte fan <laughs> yeah sorry please continue what's interesting about that time and this might have been what you were going to go on to say is that it was charlotte who actually fell in love with someone there yeah. a, a married teacher of hers yep and she carried on writing to him when she was home and it's arguable debatable that that person went on to inspire rochester yep. or you know some of the characters in her other books besides jane Eyre. so you know, there there is a Bronte sister who had that kind of unrequited, pining, yearning love, even though she didn't admit it to people around her. Um, so yeah, I know. Obviously, there's all sorts of scandals with with Branwell as well. Yeah, um, exactly. But Emily herself, yeah, she she did kind of keep to herself. So I can't even think of anyone in Emily's life who they would possibly. <laughs> Um, embellish into this kind of character I think they're basically completely fictionalizing a character it's either that or William Waitman because it's always William Waitman um, because <laughs> God, I'm sorry this is just way too inside baseball at this point but I just feel very strongly about this um, there is a 1940s film about the Bronte sisters called Devotion which basically just turns it all into like a romantic melodrama where they're all fighting over the love of William Waitman oh no <laughs> I haven't watched it um, and, and that, again that might be an unfair representation but it sounds hilarious to me and I really do want to watch it just for the lols um, but yeah we should move on because you have several other <laughs> no, recommendations no no yeah, it's I my have fault I was the one, one who was just 
going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole. We should just do a whole podcast about their lives. It's it's uh, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not quite done, and I I might dive into some others after this because I think there's an there's another relatively recent um, biography about Charlotte specifically. Yeah, which looks interesting. That's right. So. Yeah, I think I have read that, um, but I don't have strong memories of it. So kind of like that book in particular the one by Juliet Barker is so definitive you know and it's so huge that I kind of assume yeah, everything I know comes from that it seems comprehensive like yeah. everything you need to know about them is in here <laughs> so. exactly but yeah no it's always good to open yourself up to other perspectives so yeah I'm really really glad you enjoyed it Kirsty and yeah obviously based on this discussion it has my wholehearted recommendation so please do read <laughs> Um, my next thing to recommend is The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. It's a 1947 movie starring Gene Tierney and Rex Harrison. And I've seen it before, but I revisited it this week. It was on the Criterion channel. And it's just one of those like classic comfort films for me. Um, supernatural romance. It's, it's lovely. Um, beautiful people. A kind of a note of sadness in there. Um, Jean Tierney yeah. has honestly got to be one of the most beautiful people to be I know. She's so, so gorgeous. Stunning. Yeah. Yeah. I just yeah. want to cry when I look at her. I'm like, how <laughs> can you be real? <laughs> it's yeah. part of the appeal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really lovely. Um, basically, a, a grieving widow moves to the seaside into a new cottage. Turns out to be haunted. <gasps> um, and then she falls in love with the ghost. Amazing. <laughs> are, there like, are there like cottage core vibes? Uh yeah, I guess a little. I mean, she's she's not like super homey or anything. It's it's like she yeah, she lives in this city. Um her husband dies, she's living with his family and she's like I want to do something for myself. You know, I've lived my husband's life. I've been, I've lived your lives and her her in-laws are not really very supportive of her at all. They want her to stay there. Right. And um she just wants to strike out on her own and and find a new home and and she does. So Oh, it sounds yeah, really charming. I, I need to try and find out where I can watch it here. So I've never seen it, but it's one I've heard about for ages, you know, and it sounds really sweet. So I always like films from that time when they have a supernatural bend because I mm. love seeing how they realise ghosts and stuff, you know, on screen. Yeah, it's really well done. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. That makes me excited. Don't tell me how they do it because I'm looking forward <laughs> to discovering it. <laughs> okay, cool. And what's your next one? It's The Tragedy of Macbeth, which, you know, obviously is a very new release, so... It's not exactly an obscure pick here, but I just really enjoyed it. Macbeth is my favourite of Shakespeare's plays, um, so I've seen it. I've seen a lot of productions, so it's not you know breaking a ton of new ground, but it's definitely got its own take. And I, I love the Coen Brothers movies anyway. Um, striking production design. If people have seen stills floating around, it's it has a very theatrical feel, which just really worked for me. Um, I loved Catherine Hunter's take on the witches. So good. Yeah. Um, she was absolutely yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Very atmospheric and creepy. Um, and I also just really loved Denzel and, and Francis's takes on those lead characters because to have fresh takes on, on those characters now is is an achievement in its own right, in my opinion. And it just really struck me. I don't think I've ever seen a production of it where you really feel like the characters have this tiredness to them that you know the the actors are obviously a little older than maybe I've seen in other productions but it really becomes part of um the performances in my opinion like especially with um Francis's take on Lady Macbeth you just get this sense that she has this quite early on like this defeat about her which really surprised me that's not something that I usually um see in that character um yeah very interesting take yeah that is all really good observations um I've seen the film as well um and I, I don't think I liked it quite as much as Kirsty did but it is visually outstanding you know it's very much going after that aesthetic that you see in German expressionist films you know silent films um, and yeah, and if you love really like bold, out there, like expressionist visuals, you have to see it, especially in a cinema, because it's just really stunningly beautiful. So yeah, check it out if you like really, really great production design. <laughs> That's my piece, basically <laughs> relative to the film. 
I am not going to the cinema at the moment, unfortunately. I'm, oh, I'm yeah, sorry. So again, where can you so. watch it in America? I didn't realise you could watch it at home. It's on Apple TV. Oh, so, brilliant. Yep. Yeah, you can get a free trial for a week if you just want to watch that. Um, but other than that, I think it's like $5 a month, which isn't that much. So. Yeah, that is really reasonable, actually. Well, yeah. Yeah, you're making me want to get Apple TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good it does add up, doesn't it, when you've got all of these different services? But oh, yeah, I think yeah, a, it does. You a have trial to be careful. is fine. Yeah. yeah, as long as you remember to cancel it. <laughs> and my last recommendation is somewhat Star Wars related, Ooh. which I didn't realise until after I'd watched it. But it's um, a short documentary um, directed by Les Blanc in 1980 called Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe. And he does. <laughs> so, like, obviously I don't want you to completely spoil the thing. Uh, <laughs> although, to be fair, I guess it's spoiling the title. Like, is this achieved by, like, stewing the shoe? Or does he just yes. eat it completely raw? He goes to the famous restaurant, um, Chez Panisse, and Alice Waters helps him cook it. Okay. Puts it in a big pan, stuffs them with garlic, <laughs> <laughs> boils them for, like, five hours. <laughs> the context is and he, he does explain it he kind of makes this bet but it's not really a bet you know when you say like i'll eat my shoe if that happens i'll eat my hat but it's it's really a supportive thing where his friend errol morris was trying to get a movie made and he was worried about not being able to find the funding and you know what's really at the core of this documentary is not so much the stunt of Herzog eating his shoe obviously that's a part of it and it's funny but really it's about your love and passion for art and how you go to any lengths to get it made if that's what you want to do right that's your driving force in life and he's telling his friend to do that and he gets his movie made so he's like okay I'll eat my shoe Aww. I was in support of you that is so, so cool yeah it's really sweet and lovely and it's yeah. like 20 20 minutes i watched that on the criterion channel as well it might even be floating around on youtube i don't know i'll have to have a look but it was surprisingly inspirational i felt really rejuvenated when i watched it i was like yes Werner, i'm gonna go and make some art i <laughs> i feel inspired by you thank you so i thought I... you were gonna say i'm gonna go and eat my shoe <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> He didn't seem to enjoy that part very much, but <laughs> like, did they show it in real time? Him, him eating the no, shoe. No, well, I mean, they they do show him having it. Like, they call a press conference. He's cooked it, and he's like, "I'm not going to eat the sole because that's all rubbery and gluey." But sure. He, he cuts up a bit of the leather and he chews it, and I think a, a friend of his has some too. But it's really that's kind of besides the point, you know. He sure, does eat it, yeah, but yeah. it's not. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm kind of a bit preoccupied. I think. I know it's wild, but yeah. But that's him, so... No. Yeah. What, what's his character called in The Mandalorian again? I don't think he has a name, does he? I think it's no. some, like, mysterious... The Client. The Client, yes. That's what yes. they call him. Yeah. The iconic so if you name. you want to see The Client eating his shoe, <laughs> <laughs> that's the Star Wars connection. Yeah, if they really want to get the clicks, they should just update the title on Criterion Channel to The Client Eats His Shoe. No, yeah, Werner absolutely deserves all the clicks in his own right, so I hope he's getting them. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you what, what your recommendations are, because I've been talking for a long time now. Yeah, no, no, I, I very much wanted you to, because those were all fantastic recommendations. Um, okay, so I'll run through mine. So my first one is a South Korean film called Swing Kids, um, and that's directed by Kang Hyun Chol, and it's from 2018. Um, and I'm just trying to think how best to sum it up. <laughs> There's a lot going on in it. Um, but it's basically set during the Korean War in an American prisoner of war camp where they have, you know, like North Korean prisoners, Chinese prisoners, etc., etc. And essentially is part of like a propaganda effort to spread American culture. There's a black soldier and he's asked to start a tap dancing group essentially with people from all over the camp so he does auditions but most people are terrible but however he ends up with this small group that consists of like a north korean guy um a south korean civilian girl a chinese guy um etc etc and it's just this small group and they all become amazing tap dancers basically and i know that sounds like a really silly and trite plot but it's really well done and it's really engaging and interesting because 
I've seen plenty of war films before, but I don't think I've ever seen a film specifically about the Korean War. And I definitely haven't seen a film about the Korean War made by a South Korean filmmaker. So it's really interesting to get that perspective. And it just has a banging soundtrack. You know, it's got a really great sense of like rhythm to it, which is exactly what you want from a film about tap dancing. You know, it's just <laughs> fundamentally about rhythm and being able to dance. Um, and it just has one of the most like teeth clenching like finales I've seen in a long, long time. It's just really, really gripping. Um, I watched it on Prime Video on Amazon in the UK and it was just included with Prime, so it was free for me. Um, I don't know if it's available on Prime in the US because I know, you know, you obviously get different films over there. But if it is, I really, really recommend checking it out. I thought it was brilliant. Mm, that sounds good. I was thinking about watching Singing in the Rain this week, but maybe I'll watch that instead. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I, honestly, I think... Oh, they're completely different films, you know, but I could see them making an interesting like double bill, you know, they'd like complement each other in interesting ways, I think. No, so I hope you enjoy it if you do watch it. Yeah, and then the next thing I'm going to talk about, I expect a lot more people will have heard of than uh, Swing Kids, um, is called Yellow Jackets. Um, and it's a 10 episode, I guess that's too many episodes for a mini series. It's just a 10 episode show. Um, and it really took me by surprise. I wasn't originally intending on watching it, but I'd heard lots of good things and I happen to have a Now TV subscription, um, which is the service you can watch it on in the UK. Um, and I was like, why not? I'm going to check this out. And I really blasted through all 10 episodes in like record time for me because I don't watch a lot of TV, so I just usually don't find it super gripping. But this show, once it got going, it really got going and I was super hooked. Um, so it's basically about a girls soccer team in the 90s they are on a flight to go and play a game in another state I guess um, and the plane comes down and they crash in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness and essentially there's no sign of any help coming so they're left to themselves and it's basically split between two periods so it's split between them in the 90s dealing with the crash you know and how do we survive in this unhospitable environment and then in the present because you find out that several of them survived and they're now grown-ups I think like early 40s perhaps and yeah they're all like messed up in various ways basically from the experience and it's constantly contrasting like back and forth between their teenage selves and their adult selves and it's really good really gripping amazing performances um yeah it's really great I know that you wanted to watch it right Kirsty? Yeah, I hadn't heard much about it, but then I saw the cast, especially for the older characters, and I was like, oh, I like a lot of those actresses. I'm going to watch that. Um, yeah, sounds like a really great kind of Lord of the Flies premise. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, and it also has a Star Wars connection, um, because one of the younger versions of one of the main characters is played by Sophie Thatcher. Um, who's also, I don't even know if she has a name yet in the show, I don't think she was referred to by it, but she's like the biker girl, basically. She's edgy biker girl, which I think I've called her before on the podcast. I think she might have a name. I saw people talking about it, unless that was a joke. Oh, uh, okay, let's find out. Oh, I'd have to look it up. So the but... actress is called Sophie Thatcher, Wikipedia. Oh, she plays Drash. Okay, so That's the character it. does have a name. It's a very Star Wars yeah. name. Apologies, Drash. I'm so sorry. That's <laughs> a beautiful name and I will henceforth always call you Drash. Um, which sounds way too much like trash. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's really unfortunate. Can you imagine your parents looking at you as a little baby and be like, oh, little baby, we're going to call you Trash. It's probably a nickname of some description, <laughs> which I fully accept. Um, but yeah, really great show. Definitely check it out. Um where can you watch it in the US, Kirsty? I'm not completely... I think it's on, on Showtime. So I heard that it was on Hulu. So I went to watch it and then it was like, oh, you need to add on an extension thing. And I don't know, I've got to figure it out. So, but I've seen a lot of people watching it. So it's it's got to be out there. Yeah, it's definitely caught on, I think. I've seen quite a few tweets about it as well. Um, okay, so then the next one is Staff Let's Flats. <laughs> basically it's about a guy called Staff um it's like his nickname I think he's like Greek British um and he's basically works for a really incompetent letting agent called Michael and Eagle Lettings in North London <laughs> and it's just basically a sitcom 
about his various like misadventures as a really really bad lesson agent I'm not doing a very good job at selling it, but it's because it's very, very hard to explain why comedy is good, you know, why comedy is funny. Is what I find it almost impossible to do, basically. But I promise you it's funny. And I think if you like stuff like Alan Partridge, you know, it's that sort of style of cringe humour, I guess. But you're just watching someone really deeply embarrass themselves from week to week. So you need to like that sort of thing. But if you like Alan Partridge, definitely try and watch this, because I think you'd find it funny. I hadn't heard of this, but if it's about a landlord embarrassing himself, I'm all in. Yeah, no, and it's kind of funny as well because, you know, it's fully aware of what scum most landlords are and how everyone <laughs> hates letting agents. And he he is an absolute, complete moron, but it's also kind of like sympathetic to him in a way, you know, so he's sort of like a lovable moron, you know, even at the same time as he's repellent, which... <laughs> I guess it's probably going too far to say Alan Partridge is lovable, but you know you can kind of feel some sort of level of like empathy for Alan Partridge, <laughs> you know, even though he's absolutely yeah. abhorrent. So it's that sort of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was clued onto it by my friend Rebecca, so thank you, Rebecca. Um, and I think the main reason she suggested it to me is because it stars the actress who plays Nadja from What We Do in the Shadows. Um, mm. And I really wanted to see her in something else. And she's also the real life sister of the guy who stars in and created stuff. Let's flats. So it all gets very complicated. But if you like her in what we do in the shadows, you should watch this as well because she's also really great and funny in it. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to check that out. That sounds interesting. And yeah, in the UK, it's on Channel Four slash All Four, so you can find it there. Um, and yeah, then finally, and just quickly, so I think Kirsty's hoping to watch it when it comes out on HBO Max in America, so we might be able to talk about it together. Um, but I saw Nightmare Alley yesterday, which is the new um, Guillermo del Toro film, and I really liked it. Um, I felt it got much stronger as it went along. It was slightly slow to get going, but it had a real banger of a final act that I really enjoyed. I'd say it's not one of his best films you know but he has several films that I consider you know are straight up masterpieces you know I absolutely love so it would have been quite a tough task to like defer on any of those you know um but yeah it's very much worth watching it's really like interesting well acted and horribly depressing (laughs) as it turns out it's really really grim um yeah I think you've seen the old 40s film based on this story right Kirsty? yeah um I can't remember what year it was, but yeah, that was um, one of my November picks for this year. Um, nice. It was on the Criterion channel as well, so they had this big noir collection. And it, it was like this very dark, cynical feel. I mean, I, you know, every noir has its amount of cynicism, obviously, but it did have a very kind of dark, almost supernatural element to it. Yeah. Um, which does feel very del Toro, so I wasn't hugely surprised to hear that he'd done his own version. Um, and Nathan Johnson did the the score right Ryan's cousin that's right so like another like several degrees of separation thing from (laughs) Star Wars it's always good yeah yeah awesome okay so I think that means we've just about hit the half hour mark and it's just about time to turn over to Star Wars things um anything else left to say on all our picks and stuff Kirsty before we move on I don't think so. I mean, I'm curious to hear if anyone's taken us up on any of the recommendations so far. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, And yeah, if there's anything you'd like to recommend, you know, feel free to email us at scavengershall.gmail.com. Obviously can't promise we'll watch it, but you know, if it piques our interest, we will definitely try and check it out. Um, Okay, but yeah, let's talk Boba Fett. So since we last recorded, we've had two new episodes. Those are The Streets of Mos Espa. And The Gathering Storm, which sounds suspiciously like several titles of the new High Republic novels. <laughs> um, because, yeah, the High Republic novels, they all have what feels like the same title, bless them. Um, but yeah, um, I'm trying to think where best to start because I'm distracted by the huge picture of Jennifer Beals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can start there if you want. <laughs> sure, yeah, why not, why not? So Jennifer Beals is honestly my highlight from these last two episodes. And no, I'm not joking. <laughs> She's literally my favourite thing. Um, and I'm not even sure she was in episode three or if she was. It was only a No, I don't appearance. think she was. Yeah, so I think she's only in episode four, but she does so much of so little. You know, she only has very brief screen time. 
but you know she's shown giving this like speech trying to talk down the Wookiee and you know I really believed her you know if I'd been that bloody Wookiee I would have done whatever she asked like she was like so (laughs) convincing oh god and just like her reaction when the Wookiee like tears the guy's arm off and just being like Mm. oh for god's sake you know she's just so relatable she's the most relatable person in this whole thing and she also looks absolutely tremendous just like A plus costume design. I love it. It's so beautiful. It's gaudy. It's ridiculous. But she completely owns it and she looks wonderful. And so, you don't expect yeah. to see that on Tatooine, do you? No, exactly. I just love that whole place. It has that whole Canto bite vibe, you know. And I really want more of that in my Star Wars because I love the glimpse we got of Canto bite in The Last Jedi. And I want to know more about all the intrigues and stuff that go on in a place like that. But this obviously isn't that show, so it's not fair to the show to say, oh, well, I want it to be this other completely different thing. So, <laughs> It's nice to have the glimpses of glamour. Yeah. And I, I yeah. found her de-escalation techniques very familiar and relatable. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, in general, what did you make of these two episodes? Or do you want to start with episode three? And Yeah, I guess let's talk about them in turn. So Streets of Mos Espa. Um, that's basically so it starts out and obviously I don't want to do like well it starts like this and this happens and then this happens you know that's boring but like early on it begins with that like watermonger guy turning up and I think he gives what's possibly like the most bad performance in the whole show <laughs> and I feel mean Wait, so don't like, the guy playing the watermonger you know the guy who what wants... Stephen Root I didn't even know it was he like a famous actor Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, people are going to clip this, aren't they? <laughs> it's going to be like, Rachel oh, doesn't know who I mean, if, is. If, no, no, no. I mean, maybe you just haven't seen the stuff that he's in. It's fine. Sure. Have, have, you, have you never seen Office Space? No, never. Okay. Well, I think that cameo probably hits very differently if you're familiar with the actor. Right. Okay. That might make sense. I guess he was just like totally hamming it up, wasn't he? So. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. the thing with Star Wars. You're going to get these like bit parts that like very well-known actors take and then they just kind of ham it up because yeah. they're just having fun being in Star Wars. Um, yeah. yeah well, he that makes for me. so much sense now because <laughs> no, it's okay. they put out character posters after the episode, right? And one of them yeah. was for him. And I was like, why the hell did he get a character poster? <laughs> I was so confused. <laughs> so this makes so much sense. I'm so glad but this you is kind this. of, yeah. I, so it worked for me because I was familiar with him, but it's pretty fascinating and a, a good illustration, I think, of some of the weaknesses of like these kind of streamed shows where there is a lot of like references and like in jokes about the people playing these parts. But like, if you're not familiar it's like what's what's the deal there yeah i mean later on you recognize danny trejo right i did yeah 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 and, I like and you expect him. to see him yeah, yeah you expect to see him in a robert rodriguez production so it wasn't like a huge surprise but i, I really liked the way that he was used but it's also fair to to look at this part of and to be fair like he's a horrible character of he's you know gouging people with these prices um yeah, I guess he was meant to be like a get off my lawn. <laughs> Boomer. Count- counterpoint to these teenage rebels. Yeah. yeah, so. It actually made me laugh, Kirsty, because um, after the episode, my dad is watching it as well, which is really nice because he wasn't interested in The Mandalorian, but for whatever reason, he loves this. So good for him. Um, but yeah, I was talking to my dad and he was complaining about like the um, like biker teens, basically. He'd be like, oh, oh I funny. don't like them. I, I guess they had to include them to appeal to the young people. <laughs> 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 I'm like, in my head, I was just thinking, oh my God, that's the most boomer comment I've heard all day. <laughs> like, I love my dad. He's wonderful. But um, yeah, it was just hilarious. That is funny. Yeah. I really hope that we see more of them, especially Sophie Thatcher, because she impressed me so much in Yellow Jackets, and I've seen what she's capable of in that show. Obviously, very different type of show here, <laughs> so she's not going to be asked to do the same type of things. But, you know, I just like something where we do get more of an insight into her as a person, for example. You know, like, maybe she could sit down and have, like, a heart-to-heart conversation with Boba about, like, where she came from and how she ended up on the streets and... That I sort mean, of thing, you know. yeah, maybe. I'm still waiting for a big, meaningful breakthrough with Fennec. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm she's one of the lead done. characters. Yeah, 
no, yeah. that's true. We need something a bit more emotive there, don't we? But, um, yeah, I feel like they're flirting with it. They get these moments where they could have these scenes where they're just like around the campfire and stuff, where they could have these really meaningful heart to hearts, but it it still feels very surface level. And yeah. it's like I, I mean, need it, this. I will give you this. I want this. Yes, well, I, I want mean, that too. There are like bare bones there where they, you know, it's a big deal in a way for these two effective strangers. One, he saves her life, obviously, and then he's like, "I will protect your life with mine, and you can share this with me." Like that's a pretty big deal for characters who've been by themselves for so long, right? Yeah. No, that's a good. Point. And that she, uh, you know, once he chases after that um, biker gang, kills them all, which is that's a pretty badass moment. Yes. Um, and, you know, effectively says, okay, where shall I drop you off? And she's like, actually, I'm going to come along for the ride. It's like the, there's this inkling there. Like there's this element of it could go deeper here and I want to see these characters really build this kind of relationship, whether it's romantic or not, whatever. Yeah. Um, it did start off with a the- bridal carry, Kirsty, and we know that <laughs> went the other time. Sure. <laughs> Sorry, just be the um, troll. Ignore me. Just, yeah, just... Do something with it. I feel like John Favreau's writing is so bare bones. It really feels like a first draft where it's like, okay, there's elements here that could evolve into something interesting, but then you're not quite going there. It's a little frustrating. Um, You get the feeling that it was written in a bit of a rush. Yeah, no, I think that's very fair. Um, Yes, I'd imagine um, coronavirus had some sort of impact on it. So I get the impression didn't start filming until we were like already in pandemic times and I expect that put a lot of constraints on what was possible you know in terms of the number of people they could have involved and yeah all those sorts of things yeah so sorry I'm already jumping between episodes three and four now it's kind of hard to separate them in my mind yeah no worries Um, I think we should yeah let's just say we'll talk about both as as the need arises so yeah we are also talking about chapter four the gathering storm just so everyone knows (laughs) I guess my big frustration, obviously, over the past two episodes is kind of what you were afraid was going to happen with the Tuscans and that it happened so quickly and seemingly without... I I know that he then went on to exact his revenge, so that obviously was satisfying on some level, but there's not an awful lot of lingering on the fact that Tuscans... uh, When he comes back to the camp, the Tuscans are gone. Yeah. And... Yeah, it's just like, oh, that was a little too predictable, unfortunately. Yeah, like I'm kind of trying to tell myself that it's almost so predictable, I feel there has to be something more to it, you know, which could easily be completely wrong. That could be the last we've seen of them. But I could see some sort of situation where, you know, a few of them survived and they come back in some meaningful capacity. Because, yeah, yeah. I think as it stands, it is just really frustrating. <laughs> I think. Because... Why would you go to such lengths to humanise these characters unless you're really that cynical and like mired in this tired trope of oh well we need them to further his journey and motivate him. Yeah. Like that's that's really discouraging. There's really unfortunate implications to that choice as it stands at the moment. Um, and I do think there's ways to redeem it, at least partially you know. Um, but yeah, they certainly haven't come about yet. So we'll see. There's three episodes left. So there's definitely room for things to change. But yeah, at the moment, I'm definitely not impressed by that choice. And I don't know, I guess I need to stop being so cynical. But I, it kind of bothered me that, you know, the scene of him returning to find all the Tuscans slaughtered. It was so clearly referencing, you know, previous beats and stalls, you know, when like Luke goes back to the homestead and finds his aunt and uncle murdered. And I, I don't know, at this point, I just roll my eyes a bit. It's like, yes, I know Star Wars rhymes, but could we please try and break the rhymes sometimes just to keep it interesting? <laughs> Poetry doesn't always have to rhyme. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so be like one of those like weird modern poets, you know, you defy all those like traditional rules of poetry. They can do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a bummer to see that because I, I obviously as we said it was predictable in that we had an inkling that it was coming, but even that like there just wasn't much to the scene once he discovered them. Yeah. I could really give Tam a chance to to act his butt off there, but Yeah. 
Yeah. He does obviously look very upset in the moment, but you know, I could have done with some like breaking down and crying. It was very brief. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it just felt like it didn't really have relevance to what else happened in that episode. It was just like I don't know, a checkbox in a list of tropes or something. It's mm-hmm. like, and now he loses the tribe he's found, so he needs to make a new one. Um, because, yeah, I do feel of all the episodes so far, these gave us the closest thing we've got to a direct explanation of why Boba Fett's doing what he's doing, you know, establishing himself as a crime boss. Because, you know, Fennec straight up asks him, you know, like, why are you doing this? Like, you widow. <laughs> Kind of. And I think his basic answer is like he doesn't like anyone else bossing him around, so he wants to be his own boss. Well, yeah, that's another thing that's like, okay, so Jabba was a, obviously a bad boss. Yes. Not such a wonderful human being. But like, how do you go from that? That wasn't the last thing that you were doing. You fell into the Salak. And I guess I should take this moment to address the fact that we were wrong or I was wrong last episode when you asked me mm. is it Han who pushes him in and I said no I thought it was just some random background character it is Han <laughs> okay. I was corrected I stand corrected sure because we, we were like oh why would he show up in the show because do these characters really care about each other I still need to go back and like rewatch that part of Return of the Jedi because I'm like is, is Boba aware that it's Han who attempts to kill him that's a really good point. Um, I, I, that certainly hasn't been established in this show, has it? No. Is it going to be like the sense of personal rivalry at all? I, d- I don't know. It's yeah. just me. It well, let's put it this together, way. But... He has like a grudge against the bloody Sarlacc pit. And you know, the yeah. Sarlacc pit is like... I was trying to explain this to my dad. And the way I explained it to my dad is like... Look, remember the Joker? You know, there's that whole like origin story about him falling into a pit of acid or something. You know, it kind of it's kind of like if the Joker had like a crazy grudge against the pit of acid. <laughs> you know, it's like I have to destroy this pit of acid. And it's like <sighs> but no, it's not like it had any sentience, you know, it didn't it didn't have like malice towards you. It didn't want to like But it took his armour. <laughs> It's just so dumb. I ended up feeling sorry for the Sarlacc, which I know. is absolutely not the Can't help being a Sarlacc. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm pretty certain that's not the takeaway I was meant to have, but that's the way my mind works, apparently. And um, yeah, honestly, I think if he has a grudge against the Sarlacc pit, he definitely has a grudge against Han Solo. So <laughs> I, I'm stealing myself, Kirsty. Okay, I'm preparing uh, okay. for some sort yeah. of appearance. I, I, I'm not in love with the idea to put him mildly but yeah especially you know the line about him being like oh I've got some grudges I need to settle or something like that you know it's like oh okay fine oh that didn't quite register I just thought that might be towards characters like Jabba and, and Bib and yeah well whoever, hopefully it is you know because I personally think it's bullshit if he's like got an equivalent gr- grudge against Han but <laughs> whatever we'll find out <laughs> you had captured him it was even Stevens I mean yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, if any if anything, Han has more of a reason to have a grudge against Boba. You know, he like lost a year of his life trapped in carbonite. So yeah, I wouldn't be happy with that. Um, what was I gonna say? Yeah, they need to shop stop showing the Salak while I'm eating. <laughs> Every time the Salak is in a scene, I'm eating something and then I get really put off my food for obvious reasons. That's a really um, unfortunate. I would like just warn me. Just give me a bit of warning. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's not much fun. Yeah. <laughs> God. But yeah, when he went back into it for the armor, I was like, "Are you insane?" <laughs> I know. I know the armor means something to him, but it's like you—you're in so much danger, dude. <laughs> it's just so fucking dumb. <laughs> it's, like, it's like it's just armor. It's like I know there's this big thing made in Star Wars. He's not armor. even a Mandalorian. Like it's the sake of yes, it's his armor because he has the chain code from his dad and everything, and it's his connection to him. But it is just a material object. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't have spiritual meaning for you in terms of it. Yeah, you're not Mandalorian, so. And I feel if they really wanted to sell that, they should have like had some sort of flashback with Boba and Django. You know, where I don't know, like Django's cleaning the armor and like little Boba's like. Oh, why is the armor so special, Dad? Maybe we'll get something like that. I'm keep waiting for the flashbacks to kind of go somewhere because they're obviously like suggestive of his mental state at the time, but they're very brief. Yeah, you know, it doesn't seem to be building to a narrative, and I just wonder, yeah, are those going to continue. 
He's done with the back to tank. He's fully healed. Yeah. So will we still get those kind of things? Maybe just he's just like resting or or thinking to himself. Yeah, that's a really good point. They were very emphatic about that. You know, being like you are now fully healed. Which I did take as yeah. quite a clear directive that we're done with the flashbacks. But yeah, I really would like to see something come of them because you're right. Like, what's the point of establishing that? You know, if it's not building up to something or setting something up somehow. So we'll see. There's still three episodes, so who knows how they might pay off? Yeah, we yeah. will find out. Yeah, I I guess I I hadn't gone into the show with a huge amount of expectation, but when he first appeared again in The Mandalorian, I was like, oh, are they going to do something kind of interesting with Django and Boba again here? That yeah. relationship. No, so I think we we were quite fresh off the Attack of the Clones novel as well, weren't we? So obviously we had that relationship quite clear in our minds. Um, and yeah, no, what are your latest bets on the prospect for Mega turning up, Kirsty? Oh god, I haven't even thought about that. Yeah, it's been completely. Yeah, because there's been nothing. Like, I'd say they faded for me significantly. Yeah, I wonder if Fennec's going to put two and two together. I don't, I don't know. Oh yeah, but of course, because she met Omega, didn't she? Yeah. yeah. No, so it's just it's kind of weird to me because obviously. Bad Batch was the last Star Wars show we had before that, but no, actually we had Visions, but I guess, you know, Visions is so separate and so much in its own mm. little bubble, you know, you can't count that in the same way. So I guess the last strictly canonical show was the Bad Batch. It's kind of like, why have them so close together, you know, and have so many crossover characters? Well, not even so many, but, you know, like Fennec is obviously a crossover character, and Omega is literally Boba's sister. Like, yeah, why do that? Not <laughs> even... Not even just Omega, but like that Fennec has seen the other clones. Presumably she recognises them when she looks at Boba's face. Is she going to ask him what that's like to live like that? Yeah. Or, I don't know. It It's just, yeah, this is interesting like avenues that they could take with these interactions and like the development, but maybe they just don't occur to them or, or we're just looking way too much into certain things over others. Yeah. Um, and I hate to say it, but it could also be the thing where... I think sometimes the animated shows bend over backwards to tie into the live action stuff, but the live action things have no investment in tying in with the animated shows, if that makes sense. And I do think that's going to change, you know, based on the types of live action shows they're making going forward, like Ahsoka and stuff. That's obviously going to have some pretty heavy tie ins with the animated stuff. But yeah, right now watching this, I don't see too much crossover of the animated shows, but maybe I'll be proven completely wrong you know I know that like Wookiee Gladiator comes from the comics and I know I should just be brave and say his name but I'm afraid of getting it wrong so sorry. is it Black Chrysanthemum god you say it so well it's like effortless Chrysanthemum yeah. Chrysanthemum yeah. Chrysanthemum and the thing is I know like everyone's meant to be like, oh he's such a badass but I just look at him and I think what an asshole you know he's like <laughs> so antisocial like in that cantina and obviously everyone's terrified of him because he can literally rip their limbs off. So no one can, like, evict him, you know. And Maybe yeah, there's a the redemption sorry. art coming. Maybe, yeah. I really <laughs> want him to, like, make amends. I guess he did give the, like, Twilight girl in the cantina, like, a bag of money. So maybe that's his way of, like, being, like, souls. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and Boba's offered him a job now, right? So maybe he just needs somewhere to belong. Yeah, that's true. It's all about like belonging and connection, I think, to some degree. Um, you know, like there's clearly like a love affair going on with Boba and the Rancor because that's obviously building to something. Oh god, yeah. I did I did like all of that. Yeah. I, I really liked Danny Trejo's part in this and that scene in general where he's talking about the Rancor just yeah. yeah. Being a bit of a old cutie and Boba wants to ride him now. Yeah, that was absolutely one of my favourite parts as well I really liked that and I was surprised you know so I feel like it's been a, a while since I watched Return of the Jedi but in my memory I can't recall you know seeing a close-up of the Rancor's face but I saw the close-up of the Rancor's face here and I was like actually it's really cute you know I was surprised um, oh, I mean, that's a connection to Bad Batch because Omega rode the Rancor there right yeah, that's true. So maybe it is all built into some Omega thing. Who knows? You know, brother and sister both riding their respective rancors. Could be a positively majestic sight. So, um, yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Um, 
what you thought about like the whole the bikes and and that kind of design in contrast oh. to the the dusty Tatooine. Yeah, you mean like all the cyberpunk aesthetic kind of or just yeah. the bikes. Yeah, and the the use of colors there and stuff and I guess they have that chase scene <laughs> with the mayor's <laughs> assistant. Okay, so I've got conflicted feelings. I yeah. I really liked the colors. You know, I like colors in Star Wars and I kind of like the fundamental silliness of that. Because I embrace Star Wars when it's at its silliest, you know. I think that can be wonderful, Star Wars. Um, I did not love that chase scene. I it was very strange. Yeah, it just it kind of felt like weirdly awkward. It's kind of hard to describe, you know. It just felt off somehow. I think it was in the direction. Yeah, I I, I don't know what to think about Robert Rodriguez's direction with these two episodes that he's directed so far, and maybe that'll be it i can't i don't have a list i think he has one more to come okay yeah um i was expecting going in i just don't know why i made the assumption i was thinking that it would be like more desperado once upon a time in mexico i think that's fair enough it's like a dusty outback town isn't it in the middle of the desert that's just kind of where i thought he was gonna go with you know his own references and style but instead it's been very much more like spy kids which is not to say that was the wrong choice. It's just not the choice that I thought he would make. Yeah. And I, I like with all the gadgets that the kids have and stuff. And yeah, I, I just, it's not what I expected. So um, maybe that's working for some people, but it's not kind of, it's not my preferred Robert Rodriguez style <laughs> to say. Yeah, I do think it's very, very silly. And I guess the thing for me is I'm not sure how aware they are of how silly it all is, you know? I can't tell, yeah, because there is definitely a sense of humour to the show, mostly brought in, I think, by Tem. Yeah, um, exactly. Tricky little bugger. <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't a good Tem impression. but yeah. I feel to hope they've given him, yeah, as as much freedom as he wants to kind of add those elements into Boba's character um, because otherwise there's not that much there. Yeah, exactly. You know? And I want there to be. Yeah, it's like the show is fun, you know, like whenever I watch an episode, I do enjoy it while I'm in it. But really the whole thing is an experience. It is very much reminding me, yeah, I understand why, you know, Boba hasn't really been explored in depth before. So I just don't think he's very interesting. But there's nothing to say he couldn't be. Yeah, and that's, and that's exactly it. Yeah, you just need a good enough writer, right? I just, yeah, I just feel like this is John Favreau's first attempt, and it was like, yeah, that's good enough. But it could really have been more compelling, and I think that Tam bless him is doing his best. You yeah, know? like I don't nothing to fault with his acting and and the what he's bringing in with his own mannerisms and and humor but i just i think he's been given very little to work with same for fennec i'm like this is now we're four episodes in and i still don't feel like i really know much about her yeah and maybe there's a reveal coming maybe she is playing a card close to her chest so that you know maybe maybe there'll be an attempted betrayal or something but even then like there just needs to be more behind it and i feel silly in a way because i'm like what did i expect you know it's a show about boa fett it's obviously geared more towards younger audiences. So this isn't, it just isn't really my kind of Star Wars, but there's nothing like wrong with it, aside from what I found offensive about how they chose to take things with the, the Tuscans. You know, people always say like, Star Wars is a Western. It's like, okay, can someone explain to Lucasfilm and John Favreau that that doesn't mean you have to bring in the racist tropes from Westerns? Yeah. You know, you could do that smartly and, and kindly. Yeah. But the best westerns are the revisionist westerns that actually you know take the tropes of the western genre and you know and find ways of like looking at them from a different angle or questioning them you know and i feel like that's what's missing here you know it kind of feels like it's reproducing like tropes and visuals you know from these previous like products of those genres you know but it's not really doing anything particularly interesting with them and yeah, I, I don't like to be super negative, you know, and like, I don't think the show is really bad or anything. I just think there's potential for them to be doing far more interesting things of it than they are. Yeah, so that's my main point, I think, at this stage. 
I will say so far, based, you know, compared to other things that I've been watching and reading lately, I, I would say this show is kind of bad. Mm. It's not terrible, you know, and I'll keep watching. Yeah. But I'll keep watching because I like to talk about Star Wars with you. Sure. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, I just, I wish it was better. Yeah, I really do too, because, you know, I think some people like feed off like tearing things to bits, don't they? And like dissecting them, you know, and be like, oh, this is so bad. This is so bad. And nitpicking. I do not enjoy that. I like talking about things when I really love and admire them and I want to talk about why they work for me and why I think they're good, you know, which is why it's kind of tough to talk about this because, yeah, well, you know, it's fun. Like, I do find enjoyment in aspects of it. I I would agree with Kirsty overall, I think. I don't think it's a good show, really. You know, and especially, it's a completely different type of thing from Yellow Jackets, you know, so it's not a fair comparison. But, you know, when I've just watched a show like that and that's so well done and so brilliantly written and so well constructed and edited and acted, you know, it's just like top notch in all departments. And then you watch this and, you know, you really, really feel that contrast in quality, basically. And it is a bummer. So I do think Star Wars TV can and should be much, much better. Like, while also acknowledging that it's going to be very different from that type of prestige TV because it's obviously aimed at you know families and like everyone should be able to watch this um and they certainly can't watch yellow jackets because that's not appropriate for children um but yeah yeah you do just get the vibe that they've phoned it in a bit and they're kind of piggybacking on the success of the mandalorian yeah um and obviously the name boba fett you know that's gonna carry a certain amount of recognition for audiences yeah and it's interesting to talk about it with someone like my dad, you know, who's coming at it from a very, very casual perspective. And I ask him what he enjoys. And it is the stuff, seeing things that he knows from Star Wars, you know, it's like seeing the Rancor again, seeing Boba Fett in his armour, seeing, you know, like Tatooine and like the types of buildings and stuff he's familiar with. He likes all those sorts of things. And I think, you know, if that's all you're looking for from Star Wars, you know, on like a, just a light surface entertainment level, nothing wrong with that. And I think the show, it gives you plenty of that, you know, there is yeah, lots and it's, of that on offer. But yeah, I just want Yeah, and more. it's fine. It's, yeah. I, I just hope in the next few episodes things ramp up a bit and 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 maybe now he's got his shit back and they're going to go on to other things and him and Fennec have pledge their allegiance to each other yeah. and his slave one who's always slave one to me <laughs> oh god <laughs> sorry oh god i can't bear people who think like that <laughs> sorry yeah no let's not go there um but yeah there's definitely potential for more to happen now he has the ship and well actually no because he got the ship back in flashback so he's had that ever since the beginning of the show we just haven't really seen it it's just like locked up somewhere right well, I guess we're just gonna see how things go in terms of like aligning the flashbacks with the present day timeline. Like, what's gonna happen now? As we said, he's done with the Bacta and stuff. Yeah. Um, exactly. So it's like yeah. no excuses anymore, you know, because previous episodes, the runtime has been split between the past and the present. But now it's all in the present. So they really, really need to like bring up a notch in terms of telling a compelling story in the present because I just don't think the story they're telling is all that compelling at the moment. Well, what did you think about the Mando music at the end? I think that, that gives us a pretty clear indication of someone who's <laughs> going to appear pretty soon. Because um, the idea of these spin-offs was that they were all going to link eventually back to the main show of The Mandalorian, Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah, so I think it's pretty safe to say that Din is going to show up in this. Um, and I, I just, it, it sucks because I don't feel myself getting excited for that because I'm kind of like, well, it's the only reason he's going to show up just to like be a heavy for Boba Fett and just like help consolidate his crime empire. Because, you know, I don't... He does owe him a favour. He does, but I don't know, it's just like... If that's the mission, I don't think it's a very interesting mission, you know. <laughs> I have no investment in Boba Fett becoming the crime lord of Tatooine. You know, I don't think they've created a reason for the audience to care, you know, I think is what I'm trying to say. And yeah, it sucks. I want to be more positive, but I'm just struggling. Yeah, same. <laughs> I feel bad because I, I don't want anyone who's really enjoying the show to listen to us and be like, oh, oh, they're being haters or whatever. It's just... and. It, I know I'm not being fair because I went in with no expectations, but 
even so, I'm watching it and I'm like, oh, this it could be a bit more compelling. Or well, I think it, it's it could because, be doing more. You know, we're seeing what they're doing, and we're seeing that there is room for them to do more interesting stuff than what they're doing. You know, like like you yeah. said earlier about those scenes where you get Fennec and Boba talking together. You know, could be great if they were actually talking about something interesting. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I think something I found with the show is, you know, whenever there's conversations, it's almost always just very superficial and it's about, oh, we need this thing, so we must go here to get X. Mm. You, you know, it's that very sort of like direct, basic interaction, you know, that's literally just being used to like push the characters from one location on the map to another location. There's like yeah, nothing, they deserve more. <laughs> yeah, there's like nothing going on that's like internal or emotional or anything like that, you know, and the show desperately needs that. So. Yeah, and I th- that's why I think episode two resonated with me. It, for all of its, you know, tropiness, um, obviously we've seen those kinds of stories before, there was this element of internal journeying for, for Boba there. Yeah. Um, so they can do it. Um, yeah. and maybe we'll get more in the next few episodes but yeah it's hard to know for sure and I'll tell you what also happened in episode 2 there's very little dialogue <laughs> and I don't think yeah. that's a coincidence I think it's because the show is strongest when it's just doing things visually you know because I think when the dialogue comes out it's usually quite embarrassing and <laughs> not good <laughs> so, it's not one of Favreau's strengths no, it feels like it's really not so, yeah, basically the less talking the better. That's what I'm trying to say. Didn't Tem give an interview to that effect recently? Yeah, I think he did. I think he, he said that he was of the view that Boba should speak less and he tried to, you know, get more of the character's lines given over to Fennec. Um, but apparently that didn't happen. <laughs> so he still talks <laughs> quite a lot. Um, and the thing is, like, I don't necessarily agree with Tem there. You know, it's obviously I know a big part of the mystique is that Boba Fett's the strong and silent type, you know, that's part of the... In the the originals, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, when he's the lead character of a show, obviously he he has to talk. But you just need to actually make the dialogue good. (laughs) You know, that's the problem. (laughs) So, yeah. I I empathise with Tem for not wanting to say the dialogue, let's put it that way. Yeah, you could have dialogue that, like, develops Boba as a character, but doesn't stray from that. Oh, yes, I am ostensibly the strong and silent type yeah (laughs) but there are layers and again i hate to be that sort of person you know who's rewriting the show as an audience member you know where it's obviously very easy to do after the fact and it's not fair to the people who actually made the thing but you know imagine if they did a thing where you know when he's dealing with people in public you know when he's trying to project authority he does barely say anything you know like he makes anything Mm. he says very very brief and very impactful but then when he's in private, you know, with Fennec and, you know, other people in his close immediate circle, he does open up a bit more, you know, and he talks in a bit more of an emotional fashion. That yeah. that would leave a much greater impression than what we've got. And it's like, there's really weird touches, you know, like when, um, what's the name of that guy you said? Stephen Root? Um, you yeah. know, when he comes in at the start of episode three to complain about, damn kids! and like he mentioned and like there's that bizarre moment where like they both talk about their respective water planets and like Boba's like oh yes I came from a water planet and then the guy's like oh yes Tatooine also used to be a water planet it just felt so bizarre and forced and they've been reading Wikipedia yeah exactly it's just weird so yeah yeah I think this comes back to and not just ours, but in general, where there were some reservations about something where Boba Fett is the the lead character, you do kind of have to have him, as you say, like talking, emoting. <laughs> um, so in my mind, this character is compartmentalized from Boba in the original trilogy, even as we're having those flashbacks to like, you know, prequels Boba or Django, and then... Um, you know, the whole Sarlacc connection. I was like, I know that this is supposed to connect to the Boba that we see in Return of the Jedi. This is just moments afterwards or, you know, it's just, it's, it's separate in my mind. Like yeah. he's different, which is fine. It's just, it's not, it's not the same character. Like I can't, I will never be able to watch like Return of the Jedi and think that's Tem in the armor. <laughs> oh, you yeah. know, it's not. No, I completely agree with you. <laughs> Like, I can buy it as a continuation of prequel Boba, you know, that little boy growing up mm. to be Tem. 
but I cannot buy the, like the original trilogy guy being him like no way it just yeah. d- doesn't work in my brain but to be fair that was something I had you know before even like prequels Boba never fit with original tri- with original trilogy Boba in my mind so hmm. it's not a new thing yeah, and it's okay for it not to. It's just funny when it's like the timeline is supposed to suggest that this was right afterwards. Yeah. It's, it's a little too close. <laughs> yeah, it's like, no, no, not the same guy. Um, yeah, so yeah. we'll just see we'll see where it goes and it could end up having an interesting resolution and then it ties up into Mando and we see more of those characters in in that, you know, that wider cast. But at the moment, it's like, oh, I just think you could be doing so much more with Boba and Fennec here. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe that's just the shipper in me talking. <laughs> yeah, I think, and again, it's just they come so close. They even have like romantic lighting and like close contact and stuff. And again, like I've said before, they do not need to be romantic in any way, but just something, some sort of rapport, you know, it's just not there at the moment. They're getting there with him, you know, offering her this place of belonging. It's true. Her taking, there is a sense of like, she really otherwise would have walked away and gone on living her own life separately, you know, but she's chosen to stay with him. It's just, as you say, that they could just put a bit more into it. It's very understated. Yeah. Like, give give it some emotional heft, because I think they could do it. It needs more oomph. Yeah, put more faith in the actors. Exactly, yeah. So I am op- hopeful, you know, that there will be more interesting stuff in the next few episodes, you know, because as Kirsty said, we're going to keep watching, you know, it is Star Wars and you know, just like the stars aesthetic and seeing like that cute little rabbit like droid, you know, and like the droids in the kitchen and stuff. I love all that sort of thing. Yeah, they're definitely cute moments and stronger scenes than others. Yeah. Um and I like that there's like there's youth subculture on Tatooine. You know, that's a cool idea. I just wanna see it developed more. Yeah. I wanna know more about those characters, as you say. You could have a really great scene somewhere between Sophie Thatcher and Tem. But it remains to be seen so it's like there are there are these ideas there they sound interesting but we just there needs to be more to them exactly like yeah just get, what we're saying is just give us a show about the teens hanging out around the mod parlor because yeah they've clearly all been there that's clearly where they all got modified right that place i assume so or is something similar yeah um no because yeah, that was super has cool like a... it was stupid but in like the sort of star wars stupid way that i love <laughs> so, yeah it's yeah. fun and then like the music comes in and it's like they're getting tattoos <laughs> but it's like this yeah it's yeah it's cybernetics it's... yeah it's pretty yeah cool. <laughs> um okay cool but let's end it there so i'm rachel and you can find me on twitter at rachel1918 I'm Kirsty, and you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye! Bye!